everybody and welcome to the fourth edition of Ground Control. Firstly, I'd like to actually say congratulations to all of you. We've actually seen people actually understanding the need to stay in the markets as we move through these terms, particularly when they don't need the funds. And for those of you who followed our care reserve strategy or a bucket strategy, you'll also be able to draw down on those cash reserves to actually fund your lifestyle without having to sell your growth assets. So I really thank you for actually sticking with what the market is doing and allowing that to, uh, to go up and down as we go along and not panicking. The worst situation is not necessarily selling out at the bottom, but is actually missing out on the upside as we go through these volatile times. Today we actually have back with us Emmanuel Caligaris. Emmanuel is actually going to talk to us today as we move to easing of restrictions, what that's going to mean to the Australian market and what he thinks is the way the government is actually going to ease those restrictions. Emmanuel, welcome uh, today. Hi, Can you give us a little bit of an update on the economic scene? The RBA Governor uh, Stephen said the other day uh, a number of comments about uh, what he expected. Uh, what do you think uh, is going to happen uh, in respect to our recession and, and recovery? Sure. Um, hi, everybody. And um, it, it's, uh, it's an interesting world we live in at the moment. There's no two ways about it. Um, we are going to go through a very uh, severe slump uh, economically. Um, but I think that the uh, recovery is going to be just as strong. Now, the governor last week said that he's, he's predicting that we're going to uh, shrink by about 6% in terms of GDP, um, but then we should grow by about 6% or thereabouts um, uh, thereafter. Uh, so uh, back to zero growth after this uh, uh, pandemic is over. We're still going to be behind the eight ball by a little bit because what we would have liked to have seen was the economy grow by somewhere around 2% or more. So by shrinking by six and then coming back by six, we're back to sort of a zero uh, type of uh, environment. Um, and we probably should have been a little bit further ahead than that. So that, again, it reflects um, weakness, the weakness that we were seeing um, at the beginning of this year, end of last year. Um, things were chugging along, but they weren't disastrous, but they weren't fantastic either. Um, we had a period there as we were coming out of last year where we had very low unemployment, um, low wages growth and you would argue very low inflation. Um, we're going to keep having low growth, <laughs> uh, low inflation, low wages growth um, and interest rates are going to be zero for a long time to come. So from that perspective, um, you know, a lot of the economists are pointing to an abysmal time. Uh, but I think we actually have to look through these numbers and into 2021 because it was an induced coma. And we have to understand that. It was induced. We knew what we were doing. Fiscal policy and monetary policy was bridging us or you know, getting us over the ditch that we're going through at the moment. Oh, right. Look, we, we've talked about negative interest rates in the past, but I must say I've never actually heard of negative oil prices. Um, we see a lot of these things uh, talked about on TV and written in the newspapers. How do we get to negative oil prices? Sure. So uh, it's interesting because if I could take delivery of oil, which is what uh, the, the, the contract price uh, that's gone negative is the short-term contract price, basically it's expensive to turn the wells off and it's expensive to store the stuff. So once you take the price of storing plus the, the price of having to turn the wells off and back on again, um, the, the oil companies just say, well, take this oil off me and you get to a negative price. 
I don't think it's going to last for long. If I could drain my swimming pool and put oil in there, <laughs> I'd love to. Um, but then it's going to require me to get a pipe from the swimming pool to the garage where I need a distillery to get the thing into some form of diesel or petrol for the cars. Um, it's not going to happen. It's a short-term effect. Um, if you have a look at the long-term contracts for West Texas uh, Intermediate, um, you'll find that it's about 23 to $24 a barrel. It might not go a bit higher, but it reflects the fact that we've got planes on the ground, um, cars that aren't being used. Uh, you know, one of the uh, funny uh, things that I saw was I'm getting a, about, about three weeks per gallon at the moment, which was, which was quite amusing. Um, and so we're going to see this uh, as the disruption continues along and we're all still socially isolated and not going anywhere. Um, you've get, you're getting these uh, supply and demand imbalances and we've clearly got too much supply, no demand, price falls. Let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the recent um, announcements of organisations going into administration, uh, voluntary administration. Uh, that's a, a little understood term in, in, in um, layman's terms. Can you give us a bit of an idea of what going into administration is about? And of course, people just don't go into administration. There must be some history here. Uh, can you give us a little bit of a feeling about some of those companies that are actually heading in that direction? Yeah, so the first high-profile um, company I think that we've all heard about is Virgin um, and the fact that they've called in the administrators um, so they can try and restructure the business um, to, to, to cut expenses, um, hopefully again when the, when the uh, planes are allowed to fly, um, uh, you know, take the revenue, try and um, negotiate the, the, the debt uh, that they currently have um, to a different payment system or basically write it off and say, well, whoever lent us money will lose that money and we're not going to pay them back, but we, we've still got a viable business. Um, the fact is, is that um, uh, Virgin went into this crisis um, with a high debt and it needed revenue um, or sales to keep coming in the door, so selling airline tickets, to keep coming uh, in the door in order to be able to stay just afloat. Well, as soon as your revenue dries up, pardon me, as soon as your revenue dries up, um, then your debt keeps mounting. They only had three weeks worth of um, capacity to, uh, to to pay that debt um, so the creditors are then called in at that point in time and say well you can't afford to pay us back we need to look at your business we need to find out what you've got that's of value that we can take um, and potentially find a buyer for that for whatever's left um, and then continue the business <clears throat> So, um, so that's what it means to call in the creditors, restructure, uh, potentially write off some of the some of the bad loan, um, come back out of this. You know, potentially not flying um, uh, loss-making routes. So, whichever is a, you know, flying from point A to point B, we only had half the plane full um, and, and that was at the best of times but we kept the service going um, they're going to cut those types of uh, flights out so it'll be a, a materially different company um, I quite liked flying with Virgin um, you know I thought it was a pretty decent uh, uh, airline um, and I couldn't tell the difference between Virgin and Qantas every time we've flown around for business um, you know it was probably my preference over Qantas so it was pretty sad to see um, to, to see it go. I must 
also declare my daughter works for them. Um, so, uh, so you know, it's going to be interesting to see whether she's got a job as well. Yeah, look, I think the difference between going into administration and basically closing the company is that the, the jobs are still there in the background. Um, some people might lose them as part of the restructure, but a lot of people will, will regain them if they restructure uh, effectively. And there's, uh, I think most people would not like to have a, a monopoly situation in our airlines in Australia. Uh, we had it for a short while after ANSET, for those of you old enough to actually remember ANSET. Uh, but uh, it's important that we have competition in that. Obviously, they're not the only company that's actually um, are going to suffer through this process. Other companies that have got a lot of, lot of debt who are actually have had their incomes dry up as a result of uh, restrictions are going to probably struggle a little bit as well. But we'll see those over, as of, over coming months and see how, as we move out of restrictions, they, uh, they um, uh, Im improve and, and perform. One of the other areas I'm getting lots of questions on is around uh, the, the big discussion in the press and the media in respect to uh, liquidity of superannuation funds. Now, uh, as you know, uh, there is um, the ability for people who are, have had um, significant reductions in incomes or lost their jobs to draw um, um, about $20,000 over two quarters. Um, from their super fund, but we're seeing people talk about the fact that there's not the cash around. How does that actually happen inside a super fund? Sure, so um, inside the super fund things are invested um, and it might be in shares, it might be in listed property like Westfield or Centre Group as it's known nowadays, um, it might be in international shares uh, or it might be in direct property. And this is where a lot of funds uh, and industry super funds in particular have had a lot of direct property assets. Now as you and I know, um, you, even if you're trying to sell a house, you have an eight-week um, uh, lead to, to uh, advertise the house um, and then you go to auction. If you sell at auction on the day, then you've got another uh, period of time where the settlement has to happen. Um, so there is long uh, lag and lead times to be selling assets like direct property. Now when we're talking about direct property, we're talking about office blocks uh, in the middle of a city somewhere, uh, big industrial estates. These things take time to get buyers, take time to sell. So if somebody comes to the front door and says, I would like to take out $20,000 or $10,000 this quarter and another $10,000 for next quarter, um, you have to go into selling mode in order to try and, um, and get that uh, um, money to pay back your investors or those that, that have invested in your funds. Um, so uh, this is what's known as liquidity or you know, how quickly can I convert my assets back into cash and in this case these direct assets um, take some time and can take up to three months so you know if someone comes in today you can't tell them well I haven't got the money for you to pay you back um, you've got to find it from somewhere else now there's a very interesting point here um, in that uh, we all have ranges uh, by which we have to stick to so uh, in our disclosure statements what we say is that we're going to have a maximum of uh, this much in this asset class and a minimum of this much in this asset class. And so uh, if you're a forced seller of your liquid assets, um, what happens is your illiquid assets naturally grow in the percentage that you have to have in the fund. So now you've breached your covenants, so to speak, or you've breached your ranges as a fund manager, so you have to take action. Now the trustees can say, can write to all the investors, and some of you may have um, actually had uh, 
someone write to you from your industry super fund to say that uh, we're looking at this or we've breached our range temporarily but we're going to rectify it over time. The fact of the matter is, is that they need to sell assets. Now again, um, if you're selling assets um, and there's no buyers, you have to give them away unfortunately. And that is very interesting because um, what happens at that point in time is you are forced then to realise, irrespective of how you valued the assets, you're forced to then realise the difference between that valuation and the price at which you sold them. And so that might be materially different. It might be positive, it might be negative. And the question here is how negative, just in case. Um, and so from that perspective, we, we're waiting to see, um, but there are some forced sales out there. Now the other thing is, is that because people haven't been working, they haven't been contributing to super. So there's no money coming in the door and only money going out the door. So um, it's going to cause a distortion for a, for a short period of time. Um, I don't know exactly how it's, it's going to uh, pan out, uh, but the fact of the matter is that there's potentially here for these assets more sellers than there are buyers. Right, yeah, look, it's a, it's a challenge. I'm not sure, well, no one predicted COVID-19, but, uh, but no one also predicted uh, the need for this liquidity uh, event uh, as we're seeing it today. So uh, it's a challenge when you might have to actually sell assets on a fire sale, fire sale basis. L looking broader and from a global perspective, um, you know, we've... Um, We've uh, taken a view to invest uh, some of our assets uh, offshore. Um, we, um, we have um, a, a variety of assets uh, in U in denominated in US dollars uh, and obviously a, a lot of assets denominated in Australian dollars. Where's the investment committee sitting at the moment in respect to its view of, of, um, of our relationship? between the Aussie and, uh, and the US dollar? So we had an investment committee uh, this morning actually, uh, interestingly enough, and this exact topic came up. Um, from our last ground control video we mentioned that international shares didn't fall as much as Australian shares because the Australian dollar fell uh, versus the US dollar and versus the euro and, and the yen um, to buffer the, uh, the total return of, um, of in holding international shares. Um, we got down to 55 to 56 cents or thereabouts and then the question we were asking and the question we asked this morning is um, is the Aussie dollar undervalued there? Um, and if you like the assets that you're buying but the currency can potentially go back up should we um, look at getting uh, assets in, in Australian dollars because then we'll ride the stronger Aussie dollar up. The one that came up today, uh, which was um, still being discussed, I mean we haven't moved yet, but certainly we are, we're discussing it quite, uh, uh, quite openly, um, is uh, we like gold. As you know, being a committee member, um, we've had gold in the portfolio for protection and it's worked really well. And it's worked even better because we've had it all in US dollars. And so now the question says if we're still positive on the gold price but think that um, the uh, Aussie dollar can go can get stronger, should we bring that gold back into Australian dollars as opposed to leaving in US dollars? Um, as I said, uh, that is sort of a, the, the debate that we were having this morning. Um, I don't see the need to uh, act 
uh, you know, really quickly. It's not, it's not like the Australian dollar is going back to 75 US cents tomorrow. Um, but certainly if we sit around, the more we sit around the 63, 62 cent level, um, I think longer term the Australian economy is still going to do quite well. Um, and it's probably been oversold, the US dollar strength um, as the go-to currency whenever crisis happens, I, I think can revert back. Um, and so from that perspective, perspective, what we will do um, is move to uh, an Aussie dollar gold price as compared to a US dollar gold price. So these small changes being made at the margin um, just to take advantage of, of uh, markets that had been doing some silly things um, of late. Yeah, thanks Emmanuel. That's interesting, uh, interesting concept. Um, from the perspective of the government, let's talk a little bit about uh, COVID-19 and easing of restrictions. Uh, from your perspective, do you, how do you see the government um, taking us out of uh, our current restrictions? What do you think they're going to be their first couple of steps? Sure. So, again, the Investment Committee was discussing that because from our last ground control video, what we said was that um, I, I kind of think that sort of somewhere around the end of April, um, you know, puts us or flattens the curve um, materially, materially, um, and uh, and then you know the government has told us that somewhere around the middle of May is when it sees that um, easing social um, uh, isolation and social restrictions is probably the the, the time that um, that they're going to uh, move. Um, so uh, I think that's a little bit cautious as as far as I'm concerned, but. Uh, let's just take it for what it is. Somewhere around the middle of May is when we start to ease. How do we ease? Well, I don't think we'll be going to the football and having hundreds of thousands of people in one area where the disease can spread quite, quite, uh, quite quickly. But certainly cafes will start to open again, restaurants will start to open again, kids will be going back to school again as uh, uh, Gladys Berejiklian has told us. Um, and so you're going to start getting these pockets of life coming back. Um, weddings, christenings um, are going to be more than a couple of people um, and, uh, and you know provided then we don't get any further outbreaks they will then slowly get us back to things that we like doing, uh, including going to the football or concerts and that kind of stuff. Now, again, I, it's an interesting, uh, you know, the way that uh, the epidemiologists and the, and the doctors are talking to the government, um, uh, because they are so, as far as I can see, they're, they're pretty cautious. But rightly so. I mean, as I said last time round, you're not going to bring anybody back from uh, from the dead, unfortunately. But you can revive the economy. Um, internationally, I think the borders are going to stay closed for a lot longer than um, you know than, than might be expected. Um, there's no way we're going to open the borders up um, before probably at the earliest the the, the late third quarter early fourth quarter of this year. So again, coming back to the airline industries, the travel agencies, those kind of businesses, it's going to have a material impact on them for, for global business. But I think that as soon as they ease the re these restrictions, we're going to get on aeroplanes and fly to, you know, fly north for the winter. We can't get to Greece this year, as we mentioned last time. But I think we will be, you know, those of us who still got annual leave up our sleeves, will will be flying uh, just to take holiday. I, I think, as I said before, uh, no one wants to be closed up one second 
longer than what they have to. It's been interesting to see that the council of these restrictions on the beaches and we can jog along them and have a swim and get out. Um, and I think that that's going to progressively uh, continue over the next three weeks. So we're not talking a long time here. We're just talking another few weeks we should be allowed out. Yeah, I'm, I've, um, my daughter is working in the U UK in London and uh, they've just extended another uh, couple of weeks over there. Um, but like Australia, even though they've had a fairly significant amount of deaths, um, the, you, she ran, went for a run through Clapham Common, which is a very, very big park to the south of London, uh, and she just showed me that there's just nobody around. Mm. So people are really following the rules, which is great, um, and I think that's going to be to our benefit. Um, I think you know, we were talking the other day, the only thing that uh, we've got to worry about is that we haven't got much in the way of herd immunity because uh, not many of us have been exposed to it. So that's got to be a challenge for us down the track. That's right. And, and I think I may have mentioned that uh, last time we spoke was that um, we really took some, some very quick action uh, to limit the spread of, uh, of COVID-19. And, um, you know, in a 25 million population, a, a lot of us haven't caught this. Um, and so if we do get another outbreak, our herd is not that immune when you compare it to, say, China or to, to the United States or even to England, Italy, Spain. So, it, yes, it's going to be in incredibly interesting um, to, to see. And I think that that's, that's the part of this whole process of lockdown that scares me the most is that a lot of our herd hasn't become immune. I do have one question for you though, Graham, um, if I could. Um, my, uh, my daughter um, has asked me, and I don't know what to tell her, um, uh, with this superannuation um, being able to access it, um, is it a good thing? Should she do it or, or, or not? Look, it's, it's a real challenge. We, we would consider it a last resort. So just a little bit of background for you. Um, what we're actually able to do is to draw uh, two lots of 10,000 over the next two quarters, subject to us actually, subject to the person actually being, uh, had their job um, uh, uh, cancelled, stood down, their income's reduced by more than 20%. Um, and you've got to look through that and be able to actually see whether, first of all, you're eligible to be able to do that. The, the problem is that somebody who draws $20,000 today, um, in today's dollars, that actually means $60,000 less in their um, account. So that might not seem a real lot, but effectively, by drawing um, to the 20 today, you've, you've basically lost three times that when it comes to retirement. Now, one of the things that people don't understand uh, around super is that it's not the amount you contribute that actually produces your end result. It's interest on interest. It's the compounding effect of interest. So when you get your super payout when you're 65 or 70, 80% um, of that is actually the interest on the interest, not the actual contributions you make. So therefore, pulling that out now uh, and, and reducing your balances substantially um, puts you back a fair way in, 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 in d doing that. Now, I do have um, sympathy for people who need to actually access money. If there's no other way to get that money, then please make uh, use of it. Uh, the government has mandated that uh, uh, an advisor can't charge you more than $300 for you to do this, and they must check out to make sure that you're eligible before they actually do that. But I would encourage you, if you or if any of you, uh, your families, um, uh, you're dealing with an advisor, talk to the advisor about it. It also can be done through MyGov, 
um, which is actually uh, quite easy, but sometimes these comp some matters are a little complex, uh, then definitely talk to your advisor and actually do this. But last resort, um, but um, please don't go hungry uh, just because you might be waiting on something uh, for age 65. Uh, access it and make sure you can pay the rent and put food on the table. Sure. Thanks. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks once again for uh, listening to our ground control. Uh, as I said, this is the fourth in the series of our productions. Um, we are doing most of these on the basis of COVID-19 at the moment, but as things start to settle down, we'll be doing a lot more based on what's going on uh, from an economics perspective, a market perspective, and how it's actually going to affect your investments. Keep safe, and we look forward to speaking to you again soon.